Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. I'm Jay, and welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, Jupiter's Legacy Season 1, based on the Image comic book series by Mark Miller and Frank Qualty. The show stars Josh Dumel, Ben Daniels, Leslie Bibb, Alina Comporis, Andrew Horton, Mike Wade, and Matt Lanter. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. Yeah. Uh, have you read any of the comics before the series started? Years ago, when they first came out, I thought I'd read more than I had, but I must have just read issues one and two. Because this afternoon, knowing we were going to be talking about season one, I thought I'll go back and finish the, the first trade. And... Wow, I definitely did not read issue three because I was shocked by what happened in that issue. And I want to be careful of giving spoilers. We could talk more about the comics at the end just to point people where to go because they released them in a particular order, didn't they? Originally, it was Jupiter's Legacy. They put them out with volume one and volume two. And there was Jupiter's Circle, which they've now branded as Jupiter's Legacy Volume 1. So what was the original Volume 1 is now Volume 3. Yeah. Following. <laughs> so, so anyway, that original volume, so the first couple of comics, I'd read them. And yeah, I was shocked to see where the comics go because very different to the show. What about yourself? Uh, I have all of them. I haven't read them. I just knew that it'd be something I enjoy because of the talent involved, Grant Morrison, I've read, like yourself, a lot of his stuff. And Frank Quietly is one of the best artists working in the industry. Um, the thing I think he knows, he's known for the most is his Superman year one with Grant Morrison. Uh, and that, that combination alone was enough. Like, I'm in. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Um, and everyone was telling me about how good it was. But when I heard... Well, Frank Quietly, for those who aren't familiar, is uh, super detail-orientated. So the gap between issues coming out was... It could be up to like six months between issues. Like issue uh, one and two, I believe, came out fairly quickly, uh, close together. And then, yeah, it was a good like six months or more from issues on from that point. And I just knew, I'm like, you know what? I won't start reading it yet. I'll wait for the first volume to be like finished the first story arc and get into it. And then it took so long. It got, it just ended up on the bottom of a reading pile, which I'm still making my way through. And then I had heard about the Netflix deal. I thought, Oh, well, great. This should be a great way to catch up. And for once I won't have this sheer amount of back knowledge that I generally do on a comic book property. Yes. I enjoyed the fact that I went in, not knowing too much, I mean, I had a general idea from those first couple of issues. So going back to what you said before, so obviously this is written by, or the comic is written by Mark Miller. And you said Grant Morrison before, but that was when talking oh, yeah, about got... All-Star Superman. With yeah. Frank Quality. Yeah, I just absolutely. Don't yeah. To get, I just don't want us to get complaints, that's all. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Mark Miller, if there's something he's really talented at, it is getting your attention with a concept. Uh, this was one that I heard. I remember the tagline was what happens when you're the child of the world's greatest superhero. And I'm like, Oh, that would be interesting. And done in the 
the modern context of like, you know, you're, you're the child of a celebrity. You have all this attention without having earned it, without having a choice. You don't get to have a private life because your parents are in the public eye and you've grown up in a public eye, whether you wanted it or not. Um, and you know, where it goes from there. Uh, and Mark Miller does this all the time. Uh, kick ass was that very con easy, very simple concept of like, what would superheroes look like with in the real world without powers? So without responsibility, like, and that was the tagline, no power, no responsibility. And he's done that with a lot of stuff. Um, I can't wait for when they finally get around to doing superior. Cause that was a really brilliant. Yes. Thing. Uh, but all yeah, his work, so, like for the most part, and, and he's got like through his company, Miller world, he's got a, an exclusive deal with Netflix. He's got quite a few things coming. Like, there have been conversations about Superior. What else have they talked about? Super Crooks. That's yep. one that is coming to Netflix. And then you've mentioned, you know, the movie Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2. Kingsman. There yeah, he is. Was... Wanted. Yeah, you know, we could just keep going, going on and on. And even yeah. looking at his comic work, whether it's the work he did for, you know, DC Comics, Superman Red Sun. That's a big one. Well, yeah. For him. One of the greatest Superman stories ever written. Marvel. He wrote the original Civil War. He wrote Old Man Logan. Yeah, both brilliant. I mean, Old Man Logan was the concept they ran with for the movie Logan with Hugh Jackman, which is the best Wolverine movie we've ever had. And cash yeah, and that's... back to the 2000s. Ultimates. Yeah. The reintroduction and a lot of that Marvel work in the Ultimates is where they take a lot of inspiration for adapting the movies for Marvel. Um, and that's the, and like I said, that's why I knew going in, I'm, oh, I'll grab it. It's Mark Miller. The, the concept uh, pitch was enough. So I'm like, I trust him and working with Frank quietly. I mean, that guy is, as I said earlier, like one of the best artists in the industry, knowing it would take a while. I mean, for those who don't know, Frank quietly is a Scottish artist and um, he did the interior design for a hotel in Scotland that took him years. Oh, wow. I didn't uh, know that. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, if you go online and look at the images, it is phenomenal. And he had free reign. You know, the guy who owned it was like a band was like, you know, I don't suppose you'd ever be interested in doing like a Sistine Chapel style thing, but with like free reign and like, I've got a hotel and Frank Whiteless, yeah, I'll do that. It'll take a while. Yep. Time's not an issue. Money's not an issue. Uh, so if you see what he's accomplished, it's phenomenal, which goes back to like why it probably took so long for the issues that came out. And like you said, Jupiter's legacy started first. And I don't even think we got to the end of it before Jupiter's circle, which is the parents generation when they get first get their powers and what it was like working as the the first superheroes that started before it finished in fact right okay emery its first story arc finished before the main book's main first story arc <laughs> and it's <laughs> that's a different just artist. how long yeah yeah and that's uh which is why it, it could come out quicker is because the uh, artists who still good didn't have the demands of Frank quietly doing a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> I think even without the, the, the hotel, he's known to be not the quickest artist, but his quality of work is such a high standard. But with the, the other book then, Jupiter's Circle, 
the artist. It's the guy that's working on the Superman 78 comic. I think his name's Will Torres. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. He's the guy doing that. So all together, because I was looking at it today, there's four trades all together. And because they've repackaged them, as I say, it's volumes three and four that are Mark Miller and Frank Qualty. But I'm looking yeah. to get all four and they're close to releasing the next series or the next spin-off. Yeah, it should be good. So that'll be pretty cool. While still staying on Frank Quality, did you get did you notice the little reference to him? Yeah. Yeah. It slipped into the show, which I always love when they do this. They it's it doesn't need to be heavy handed. You don't need to have these creators actually walk onto the show because you know these guys are writers and artists they're not actors um but just to find a way to honor them in a in a style and this this worked really well what i noticed on the show arrow what they tend to do with street signs yeah street but signs comic um, artists and yeah. writers mayor whoever judge yeah whoever well they did that very heavy-handedly with the ben affleck daredevil movie like most of the characters i mean kevin smith his character's named Jack Kirby in that yeah. in that movie. But the reference to Frank Quality, if you missed it, the Quality Express logo can be seen on a van that appears. So a bit of promotional material in one of the episodes. I think it's one of the earlier episodes, maybe even the first episode. Yeah. So the show then, upon its release, met with negative reception didn't get welcomed and i i heard all the negativity before going into the show and this is quite a short season as well like it's eight episodes and i was very surprised to see i mean one that that's the number of episodes because we talked about in the past how with netflix they tend to stick to the 13 and want yeah. the episodes to run for an hour whereas Juby's legacy i think one episode was like half an hour and then they can go up yeah. to an hour. So I like the fact that we've talked many times before where they're allowed to take as much time or as little time as they need to tell a particular story for a particular episode. Yeah. Um, and I've heard uh, creators talk about Netflix. They've relaxed it uh, over the last few years to allow for sh- a shorter seasons. This being a great example because the Marvel Netflix stuff ran into that problem of like, you have to do 13 and then you get one or two episodes or even three episodes, which suddenly the story stops to a crawl to eke out enough time or screen time to make that 13 episode count. So they've learned their lesson. I think it's how it works. Although you'll never get exact numbers from anyone involved is if you say about seven or eight episodes you have one lot of money allocated to you if you go up to 13 you will get more um obviously that's not a blanket rule if you're the type of series with the kind of talent attached that can warrant getting more money for fewer episodes that's something they work out but that's generally how it is is yeah if you take less money or if you do less episodes you'll uh, you'll get less money allocated to you, but you also get more freedom with that as well. Um, but yeah, it's it's strange to hear that it's been poorly received because I have a really good friend who 
likes watching comic book related stuff, um, but has never been able to get into comic books themselves. In fact, only like two comic books uh, uh, series he's ever been able to get into was Old Man Logan by Mark Miller and um, something else with a, a really serious ultra-violent tinge to it. And he's, yeah. he started watching this before I did. I was getting messages from him. He was like, oh my God, dude, you've got, I've just finished Invincible. Like, have you been watching Jupiter's Legacy though? I'm hooked. <laughs> and I'm, so yeah, to hear negative feedback is strange. You know, you know what I, I think it is? I know a lot of people that have not even watched it. And they based that on that first trailer, which if I'm honest, the trailer didn't look very good. I, well, actually, because I was, again, just a couple of issues into the series, I was familiar enough so I could appreciate it. But I guess if you don't know these characters at all and you just watch that trailer, like I showed it to my wife and she just thought it looked cheap. Yeah. The show looks better than it does in that trailer, but the way it's cut together, because to be honest, like, I mean, the show is, you do have superheroics and you have that big fight that in, that, in, the, in the season premiere the finale, that's where your big fights are. And then you get some fight scenes in the other episodes. But for the most part, it's not about big superhero battles. And when they chop them together in that trailer, I think, yeah, it, it, show, it puts together, it portrays the show in a way that the show isn't. It's a lot more human drama. They just happen yeah. to have powers. Yeah, and I do, like... I, I did think that off, off the get-go. I'm like, oh, that trailer's a bit rough. Um, but also thinking, oh, the concept, that's not showing the concept at all. It really is uh, boiled down without being exactly that. What if you were the, your, your father, your parents were Superman and Wonder Woman, uh, you know, founding members of the Justice League and have been doing this for like decades and decades and decades and you grew up trying to live up to that like how were you supposed to cope with that kind of pressure um which as you said is is the human drama side of what the main part of the series is and one thing i will like i would like to bring up is the suits do look uh, and the makeup can look a little on the cheap side compared to what we have become accustomed to in 2021 <laughs> i like to put that little caveat because yes. this would be phenomenal on a movie that was 10 years ago this would be phenomenal on a tv show that was five years ago unfortunately we've become accustomed to the exceptionally high quality from the marvel films the dc films other independent films that have done this sort of thing and even on the tv side um the kind of money they're going into with superhero TV quality costumes now on from CW Arrowverse yeah. have a, a multi award winning costume designing team. Like, I know, but the big the big difference there though, because like when when Superman or Tyler Hoechlin first appeared as Superman in episodes of Supergirl, that suit was not good, and he had that throughout all the crossovers. And then when he got his own show, Superman and Lois, the suit he has now is absolutely fantastic. So whoever is putting that suit together, working on that suit for that show, it's one suit. Jupiter's Legacy, it's the first season. It's an untested property outside of the comics. And they've got to put six costumes on screen. 
well, more than that. You've got yeah. six main costumes and then all the others. So they're probably stretched thinner than they would like. But the costumes, if I'm honest, I can just go with. Like the Utopian it's a, it's a pretty cool design. You don't see many superheroes in white. So already no. visually, it looks different to most costumes that we've had. What I really struggled with, though, the beard. Yeah. The beard. Yeah, it's, it's hard. It's a hard one because at no point, for me, does it look like a real beard. Never. Yeah. It looks, yeah. It looks uh, stuck on. Yeah, because, you know, the fact that it's Josh Duhamel playing the Utopian, you know, he's not as young as he was when he was doing the Transformers movies, but he's nowhere near as old as the Utopians play, playing. And you can't bleach a beard because, you know, the skin on the face and, you know, the, uh, they're cutting between young him and, and modern day him. So young him has dark hair and dark facial hair. And so you can't bleach all the crap out of him unless you're going to do all those young scenes first. But that's a, that's a whole other logistics nightmare on the behind the scenes stuff. But yeah, you're not going to bleach the face or the skin on the face of your main star. You just, you're just not going to do it. And given the, the very detailed uh, look and quite quietly art isn't as uh, atypical as most of the comics industry, finding a way to render those into 3d is would have been hard for anyone. Um, and white is one of those big ones of you've got to light that you've got to, it's got to fit the actor. It's got to, you know, there's multiple angles. There are different elements. It's got, you know, in different ways of lighting, but yeah, things like the, the beard, it fails. Some of the, um, age makeup as well. Um, yeah. certain, certain shots that it looked rougher than others. I'll, which... I'll say this though. I could, I can go with it. I can. And I think for them to come back with a, a second season, maybe Netflix will throw more money at it and, and visually they'll do a better job. But if you look at like what they're doing, the Marvel movies where they're able to digitally de-age actors. Yeah. This show has not got that kind of money. So they've got to go old <laughs> school, but, it, but again, like aging up, Sheldon Sampson, the Utopian. Right. Okay. I can go with it. But when you've got characters like Walter Sampson, Brainwave, played by Ben Daniels, it's it looks like he's had a weird hair transplant when you've got him in the modern day. Yeah. Um, but not just that. Age makeup itself is incredibly hard to do as well. Like de-aging, they've gotten pretty good in like the last decade. But aging uh, makeup to severely age someone has always been much, much more difficult because, you know, generally as you get older, you, your cheeks hollow out, your muscle definition goes down and, you know, uh, special effects makeup is all about adding layers on in order to add um, texture and that kind of thing. You can't hollow someone out to give them that accurate look and old skin as well is very fine you know like like a really thin fabric like like linen and silk it uh distorts in a very specific way um and even with uh 
this, this is visual effects stuff from when you're doing it digitally with CGI. They call it specular pattern or specularity, which is the semi-translucent nature of skin that increases as you age. These are all things. Physical makeup is never, is never ever going to achieve on its own. Uh, it just, it just isn't going to happen. So like yourself, having grown up with really really bad special effects i'm i'm thinking like 90 star trek which i happen to be watching at <laughs> yes. the moment oh, okay like so yeah so seeing those makeup effects i'm like it's it's what you're going to be put up with if you're not going to have a special effects team go frame by frame aging up or aging down these actors it's just the reality of the job i mean you know the season first season of wandavision cost as much as if it were a full film you know we're talking like 150 million dollars us like i don't think yeah you can't you're going to compete like that yeah you can't compare budgets between what this netflix show is doing to marvel i I was thinking of a good example and going back to the 80s of like aging actors up with makeup coming to america i mean they had rick baker and that was a movie budget but what's happening in the show, what didn't happen in that movie, not only are you having the characters age up, you're showing them young as well, like playing the same character. Yeah. And I've got to be honest, Ben Daniels in this, he's the, he's the one actor that I honestly thought for a moment, is that two different actors? And it's more so that it's, he just looks more different. Like the shape of his head's different. Like the, the drawing of him when he's old is pretty much what he looks like in the show. They yeah, did a yeah, really spot good on. job of matching matching him. But yeah, that actor, I'm like, wow, he really out of all of them. Like you look at Josh Jamel and it's him with long white hair and a white beard. And then yeah. like Crow's feet for the most part. That's the yeah. that's the big difference. Whereas Ben Daniels seemed to be a bit more of a bigger transformation. Yeah, um, and you know, the, uh, with things of this nature, I said like, and you've already mentioned it's you can get this makeup spot on for on a TV budget on like one or two characters. You're talking half your cast on this, an expansive cast. It's it's just a simple logistics thing uh, and a time thing. You know, it's you're never gonna achieve it on season one. Season two, yeah. They've worked with the actors more. They've gotten better at applying stuff. They've developed those techniques, but you know they've got they had a big challenge, a big challenge to get this. And you know all of that on top of you know when as as they're in their age makeup, they also have to get beaten up and add like injury makeup yes, on top of it. that age makeup. Like Bruises, it, yeah, cuts. It, yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think that's the most we've talked um, makeup. Yeah, <laughs> when, when reviewing a, a TV show or a movie, what we should say, the utopian, like a lot of what's ha- happening in the show, the code is a big part of it, and and the code is something that can apply to almost all superheroes, whether it's you know this show, Marvel, DC. Heroes don't kill, and that's yeah. and that's the code, and, and the finding in the show that the golden age of heroes could live by that code. I think it was Sky Fox that moved away from it first and then became a villain. And he's teased 
throughout the show, but the rest of the heroes and the new heroes coming up, they're still following that code of not killing. But then the villains are changing the rules and the villains are now killing and the heroes are getting killed. So it's really interesting what's going on there because as you've said, Utopian, he is the Superman character in this show. So it's fun to watch this show, which isn't Marvel or DC, but you can very easily, more so DC, I would say, see the parallels to characters that we do now. Yeah, and one of the odd things is I don't think they actually explicitly spell out the wording of the code. It's basically all you kind of get is we don't kill and we don't enter into politics because that's not their job. Their job is to help people, uh, not control them. So the code Um, is not to kill or rule others. That's very much what Brainwave is looking to do. He's recognized that things aren't getting any better and he's wanting to step in and change the course that America is on. Yeah. Uh, and this, this touches on a lot of things. It's probably more relevant now than when it was written uh, what, six or seven years ago, which is you have the utopian who's very much the old uh, conservative way of doing things. Those are his ideals, believes in God, um, you know, prays before Sunday dinner and that sort of stuff or gives, or, or, you know, says grace. He's, and he's, he's hardlined and unbending. It's like, no, no, no. You, there are no situations you're allowed to kill. Like you, you can't even like say, you can't answer political questions at all. Like, Oh, who do you think people should vote for? It's like, don't, I don't answer those questions because even an, an endorsement by accident or just conversationally, it becomes an, uh, a, a big thing. Just like when actors go, Oh, vote for Joe Biden or, you know, Oh, you should vote for Donald Trump. It's only, without them saying anything like, oh, that's who I'm going to vote for. I don't think anyone should follow me specifically. It, it, uh, it uh, turns into an official thing, even though that was never the point, which in this day and age is spot on. It's exactly how things get angled and manipulated. Uh, and they do a really good job over the course of the show showing the actual impact specifically on the heroes. They have many, many, many young heroes who are trying their best to live this code, but the villains are kind of mobilizing and are more on a hunt. It's not that they're, they're committing crimes and heroes are turning up. It's getting to the point by the season's end where the uh, villains are, are more aggressive and like chasing down heroes because they know they're not going to fight back with as much gusto. And it's becoming like a war of attrition where the heroes are losing ranks because they won't break the rule and the villains are kind of pushing the power balance. And like you said, it's, it seems to be all under uh, planned out by brainwave because he's, he knows it's not going to change. He knows it can't change. Uh, And that reveal, which comes way, way, way at the end of, in the final episode of season one, um, it just put into context of like, why, a specific line kept running through uh, the Paragon's head of he's not ready. I don't think he'll ever be ready, which seems to be the thing that always drives him to go 
his actions one way or another. I'm like, that's a strange thing. Why is uh, you keep hearing that? And then uh, episode eight, I'm like, ah, oh, that's why he keeps hearing that in his head. It's because it's been it's been manipulated up by brainwave. Yeah, yeah. it's been manipulated. I. Yeah, because, again, not knowing exactly where this was going to go, I enjoyed the mystery because they're trying to find out who killed Blackstar. Not who killed Blackstar, who cloned Blackstar and set him up on the heroes. Because in that first episode, you've got the Paragon, the son of Lady Liberty and Utopian, and he murders him because he wants to put this guy down before he murdered his family and friends. And yeah, having already killed three of them... Yeah, and that through his friends as well that he grew up with, that he's known his whole life. And that's what set this all off. And But the mission running through, like, who's really responsible? And then, you know, episode eight. Oh, okay. So it's Skyfox all along. We'd spent time with his son, Hutch. There'd been mention of Skyfox, and we'd seen him in the flashbacks. And then when it was revealed to be Brainwave, I was like, ah interesting but they but then i was thinking about it afterwards because he was really beating himself up in there wasn't he when he went inside black star's head or the clone of black star yeah yeah uh i know it's one of those things that on closer inspection doesn't quite hold up because he could have just come out and like <sighs> it was sky fox like why did yeah. he yeah, like did like was did he did he always expect Lady Liberty to jump in after him? I mean, he's really oh. sold it to them, hasn't he? Like, yeah. You know, as soon as that second season comes around, nobody is going to be suspecting Brainwave at all. We've mentioned the Paragon a few times already. Andrew Horton plays Brandon Sampson, also known as the Paragon. He's the son of Lady Liberty and Utopian. And he's struggling to meet his father's expectations. And what they're telling us between him and his sister Chloe in this show is that he's who he really is in the modern day is the utopian. And he can be that for everybody in the world that needs him. But as a dad, he was just never really there. Yeah. Yeah, it's the... um, He was his utopian 24 hours a day. It's the opposite of, of Superman. Um, you know, Superman was warned, if you've ever read the comics, don't get rid of Clark Kent once you become Superman. You need that. You need to have time to yourself to remember what you're fighting for and to, to connect properly with the world. Um, Utopian hasn't got that balance. It's all work. It's all responsibility. And he's so driven by that conviction because it worked for him back in the twenties or thirties yeah. that he he's unwilling to break it in the 20, 2020s. Um, they don't really touch on the secret identities too much in the show. Like we're led to believe they do have them reading the comics. He's a mechanic and they've got a very modest home. That's what Sheldon does. He, he fixes up cars and there's a, I think it's the character Hutch that he comes to his place of work at the first, I think maybe issue three or four. And he basically says, Samson, that the reason why he has a secret identity is so he can experience life as a regular person. 
like just so he knows what he's fighting for, which I found interesting because that's different to my take on Superman and what he was just saying about not giving up the Clark Kent identity. So for me, a big difference between the utopian and Superman is that for Clark, that's, that's who he is, but Superman is what he can do. Whereas for the utopian, that's pretty much who he is. And he has that scene with Chloe and he's not in his utopian suit. And she's like, you know, this is not you, like just in civilian clothes. Like utopian is who, who you really are. You know, so we've talked about the costumes already. In, in the show, they just appear wearing them. Yeah. The six of them are in, are in the air. It's like, what is it, episode seven? Or is it the end of episode seven? And they're just in the yeah. air. And they're all just wearing the costumes. Whereas in the comic, they chose to wear them and designed them. So yeah. that's interesting. And we don't know how they got their powers. So there's a couple of mysteries running through the show. One is who is really behind the clone. And two, how did they get their powers? And we still yeah, don't know. It seems you, you learn very quickly that the original members were the first. And then everyone seems to have them. It took me a few episodes to figure out, like, oh, no, no, everyone with powers isn't a direct descendant of that original group. It seems that once the first person who had superpowers turns up, they just started triggering. And that's what you get in the flashbacks by that end of that seventh episode. Like, you see it wash over the the guys on the boat and seems to interact with them in a way that would indicate... They've got, like, symbols or, like, markings on the faces. Yeah um that that's the superpowers kind of like manifesting around the world through that sh- uh, on where that shockwave hits I'm like all right that's good that's like a, a a visual representation without you know i'm sure we'll get more in depth in season two but i've been given enough indicators of like okay that makes sense because otherwise who where were the super villains coming from you know if all well, that's it, you're only yeah. six people with superheroes like there are seven people with superheroes like someone had to be the problem uh and the other thing is you know they had to go through an ordeal like trials to be allowed to get the superpowers in the first place and we see over the course of those flashbacks throughout the episodes they weren't the first there were others who had gotten the call some had just completely ignored them like um old man miller (laughs) who decides to shoot himself in the head rather than deal with it. Uh, and those who had actually made the island and turned on each other during the trials. So I do like that there's some history to this world and of this ability. But yeah, it, um, it, I, I'm looking forward to getting more information. Like Skyfox, if he hasn't been behind all this, where has he been for all these years? That's what I like that, you know, we've got some questions answered, but there's a lot more, there's a lot more questions out there. You mentioned old man Miller played by Kurtwood Smith. Yeah. That 70 show. That 70 show. He's done other stuff as well. And his wife was in WandaVision. Yeah. Pretty, pretty, pretty cool. But yeah, no, it was great seeing Kurtwood Smith in this. We've mentioned a couple of times already now, Sky Fox. He's played by Matt Lanter. 
and the name did ring a bell. I looked into it. Is the voice of Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars: The Clone Wars and Rebels? Yeah, Anakin Skywalker, good guy gone bad. Skyfox, yeah. good guy gone bad. Yeah, uh, and just I mean, also this, nice this, to uh, see him. This guy's got a type. <laughs> yeah, uh, but also just being someone who's known quite well known as a voice actor being portrayed uh, in live action and having the character not just voicing a character in the background is is nice for him um but yeah he's uh he's a lot of people's anakin skywalker <laughs> because of the clone wars cartoons yeah. um and really talented i mean and you know i've watched all of the clone wars and rebels and i'm currently watching bad batch i'm sure you've you we did rebels so on yes, this podcast we, yeah we reviewed rebels we haven't done the Clone Wars because I've still only seen the movie in the first episode. Well, we've talked about it off air. I'm going to watch the final season that Disney Plus put out last year. We'll review that final season and you'll be able to speak to some of the earlier seasons. And, and then I can finally watch The Bad Batch and then we'll also review that. So we've got quite a few Star Wars episodes coming up. We've not talked about Lady Liberty. Well, we have a little bit, but we've not acknowledged Leslie Bibb as Grace Kennedy Sampson. Yeah. Also, you know, as soon as I saw her, I'm like, oh man, she's so familiar. And then it clicked almost immediately. She's the reporter from the first Iron Man movie. Ah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yes. And she comes back again, doesn't she? I'm sure yeah, she's in Iron Man than... 2. That makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, she's playing Lady Liberty, as you said, um, and she's very much the the mother. You know, I don't, I don't like to channel it down to that, but she's playing diplomat between her kids and her husband because the Utopians so hardline. Yeah, like she. She's grown up. She's from the time, but she's like, yeah, you know, you know they want to be kids as well. They got to have some time to themselves. Like they, yeah, they don't have what you have. Yeah. She's moved with the times a little bit. What I will say, all right, the middle episodes, she kind of disappears for a little bit. Like you do, yeah. you know, still get her occasion in the flashbacks, but yeah, she's noticeably missing for quite a lot of the time. Other yeah. than the beginning um, and end of the show. Yeah, and um, I did like her relationship with uh, the young hero, Ghostbane, who, uh, and there's, I think it was episode six, where it kind of really sh- hits home. And I thought she was going to, her character was going to make a, a choice and a massive change, which unfortunately doesn't happen, uh, where Ghostbane is fighting for her life and, dies because she refused to kill she's like it's all right i didn't do it i didn't kill and she dies in her arms and then lady liberty goes to beat the crap out of the villain responsible and i thought for sure she's going to make the same choice her son did and this guy's going to die yes and I, she holds yeah she holds back right at the end i'm like oh man yeah i did not see that coming no, i thought I'm glad, she, yeah i'm glad that's the way that it ended but she you know, the authorities are waiting outside and she's, and you know, the morgues, you know, the morgue or the, you know, take away the body is there. And yeah. she's like, she's dead. He's alive. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. She could have, 
but she didn't. Yeah, uh, and I'm like, brave, brave, um, not just for the character, but also for the writing, because it does kind of feel like, really? Even that couldn't push you down? Where is your line? Um, but it's, it is an interesting character wrinkle, yeah, because yeah, yeah. does she still believe in the code? Because everyone seems all the other heroes that aren't utopian seem to be questioning it. Yep. Um, yeah, and the moment where you think maybe she started to question it herself, well, she makes, they kind of back off. She makes a point of saying that she is her own person with her own thoughts. And yeah. when we meet her, like in the twenties, like she is like an independent woman. Like you know, she's got a career. She's doing everything for herself. So it's good that she's not lost that. But she, I think in the show, she couldn't kill because the Paragon had done it already. So she couldn't do it as well. And just like when you have the scene in the prison and Blackstar, the real Blackstar, who we should say, Tyler Mayne, Sabretooth from the original X-Men movie. Incredible having him yeah. back for this. But when he's got Paragon in a headlock and... If he, if he wanted to, it could just snap his neck. He could kill him. And he's saying to Utopian, like, you know, will you break your code to save your son? And then, oh, that's when the other character comes in. Blackstar releases his grip and Paragon. And then once Blackstar leaves, Utopian says to his son, I wouldn't have let him kill you. And you're like, I think you would have. Like, when you watch yeah. it as the audience, you're like, I don't. I think your code would have stopped you from saving your son's life. And he says, "I know, Dad," but he doesn't. Yeah, uh, and in the end, it's Paragon who takes down Blackstar or uh, resubdues him because again, but this time doesn't kill him. Yeah, um, which it's almost like he's got. He's so angry that his dad is willing to let him die to protect the code. Oh, that that's right. He, he... <laughs> Blackstar doesn't escape. Yeah, it takes him down yeah. this time without killing. You know, we've kind of just completely bypassed Chloe Sampson. And yeah. if, if you're listening to this, you've watched the show and you've read the comics, she is so prominent in the comics. And that's just reading out the first five issues. So we should probably talk about her. She's the party girl. She's got the powers like her parents, like her brother. Only she's more about photo shoots and fame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, played by Eleanor Camporis. She, yeah, she's done the opposite way. Like the the crushing expectation and weight of her father has pushed has has driven her the other way. Instead of becoming a superhero, she's like, you know what? I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. There's no way you could ever live up to his expectation in the way anyway. So I'm not even going to try. See you later. I'm off. Um, and with that celebrity, she's gone into modeling and she's very much living that stereotypical burn the candle at both ends, kind of a wreck of her life, doing drugs, basically living nocturnally, um, being turning up late to shoots and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And she's one of the strongest there is. Yeah. She, at least as strong as her brother. Uh, I even got the impression that maybe she was stronger <laughs> at the show, uh, but completely refuses because uh, she's so over it. She's like, it's ridiculous. It's, it's childish. 
I'm never going to live up to my father anyway. No matter what I do, he's going to be disappointed. Um, and they do that that scene you t- were talking about earlier, where the utopian turns up in stri- in his civilian clothes, to try and talk with her. They just had each other's throats. No matter what comes out of each other's mouth, no matter what the intention, no matter how yeah. it's worded, the other one takes offense. It's like a constant battle. And you're like they, they, these two are never going to reconcile. It's Honestly, just a a high praise for this show is that take away the old age makeup, the the, the special effects, all of that, like the the human drama, like the relationships, and the that example there, you know, father and daughter. You just buy it. Yeah. Like you yeah, completely it's... buy it. It's it's a lot of it is so raw, especially them. So when they like say they're at each other's throats and they just they just can't make up and they go their separate ways again. You completely you completely buy it. There's a scene with Chloe that I really like, a couple of scenes. When she first meets Hutch and his criminal mates, and she's walking, she's talking on the phone, the truck hits her. The fight breaks out. But then in a later episode, you find she just like bombed at that photo shoot. She picked up a car and threw it. And that's when she ended up on the street and she was on the phone to her agent. And then she collides with Hutch again. I thought that was good how that all played together. Yeah, absolutely. And on, on the other note, they, for me, really nailed her look from the comic. Like, it's oh, shocking. I mean, short dark hair, miniskirt, or hot pants. Little top. Yeah. Hey, you're right. They did the nail it. Yeah. But um also where it goes from there, her relationship with Hutch was really interesting. The fact that, you know, later on we find out at at first with Hutch we're just following Hutch because he's a villain without powers. All he has is this teleporting rod thing. Um and he's messed up and he needs to make amends and and get out from under like the situation he's in and when he hits chloe with the car the van um that was the job that was supposed to get him out of that way out of that problem uh and they start dating but then you find out he's the son of sky fox just roll the dice genetics never got any powers with it um and yeah i'm like oh that's that's really good and played really well by ian quinlan i mean he was great in every every single scene like, oh he's fantastic yeah for sure really interesting uh really interesting character i always i've always enjoyed that idea of uh what if you had all this expectation like technically speaking you should have had everything handed to you like from your parents genetics and that kind of thing and like power and that sort of stuff and then it just for whatever reason didn't line up you didn't inherit all the things everyone else in your situation would have um whether you were like a king or something like that or in like in this case you know your parents had superpowers and for some reason you did you don't um what would that do to someone's mind and personality um but yeah it's it's really cool yeah and it's really said it's a really interesting character yeah and the play between those two like neither of them want to like interact like introduce each other to their social circles or anyone else um and it adds this uh, it works out because they're kind of in a bubble until it's gotten to the point of the relationship of like we either actually start interacting in people's each other's lives or this ends like 
what's what's gonna happen um and she makes the decision of like you know he's committing a crime he's going after something uh and he's messed up he's gonna die like he's gonna suffocate in that bolt that has no oxygen and he's got he, he wasn't aware because he's half-assed it and she rocks up and saves the day and she's essentially broken the law like i'm like is she going to become a villain from here into season two that'd be really interesting like she's so sick of her dad's crap that she's like fuck screw it I'm going to, I'm going to play for the other team. Like, man, that's really sets up some interesting stuff, but it, and it's believable as well. The way she's interacted with everyone to that point, watching her friends who uh, she may not care, like uh, actively in best in their lives, but watching her friends who are superheroes die because of this stupid code, watching her dad, like berate her brother because he broke the code in order to save everyone's lives. Like, yeah, it's, it's smart, and it, you, you buy it whole hog. Like, yeah, that's that's exactly how they react. What I will say now, from reading the first five issues of the comic, it's easy to see that they're not just doing the comic; they're making quite some big, big changes. So I know where these two characters go in the comic, but because other things happen in the comic or happen in the show and not the comic, I really don't know where it's going. So I'm going to continue reading the comics, knowing that it's not necessarily going to be the same thing on screen. But yeah, I really enjoy their relationship with the comics and for different reasons, enjoy it in the show also. We should mention that the teleportation rod that Hutch is using belonged to Blue Bolt, one of yeah. the original members of the Union. Yeah, which you don't get that information until like episode eight. Um and he's the only one of the original members who ended up with a device like this. Um, yeah, but somehow... I don't, I don't quite know why he got the device because all six have strength, flight, and then I guess they have some differences between them all. Like obviously Brainwave has a different power set, but they can all fly and have strength. So something's happened where Sky Fox, I guess when he went villainous, has killed Blue Bolt and taken the rod and left it to his son who has no abilities great son who is trying to find his dad but whenever he teleports by saying go to my dad he ends up in a different strip club yeah for some reason uh, we, don't, we don't know why it's like yeah because it, it takes utopian there it's okay i'll take you to my father and he'll say take me to my father he's in a strip club utopian's like is this some kind of joke <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and he's like, look, yeah, because it, it responds to his words exactly. Take me to the back of the van. It doesn't have to be that van, like at coordinates. It, it understands and interprets his intent precisely. Go into Big Man's heart. Home. Oh, he doesn't. Yes. He doesn't need to how, be near it. How cool was that when he the switch of how dangerous he actually yeah, is? Because honestly. Up until that point, that I didn't think anything along those lines. Like this is a guy that is able to teleport, and that is that is his thing. But he was actually using that teleportion. He was actually using the the rod as a weapon. Yeah, which, yeah, that was very very cool. A character um, I found really interesting, Doctor Jack Hobbs, played by Nigel Bennett, one of the Utopians' old enemies now serving as his imprisoned therapist. 
Yeah. And you've got him the reveal. with a therapist. Yeah, oh, this is interesting. Yeah, I suppose, you know, he's experiencing a lot and he's got a lot of trauma in his past with what happened with his dad and, you know, everything that he's experienced throughout his very long life. And then you find out, well, he's an ex-villain of his. Yeah, yeah, and they it comes after a while. Like he's been, they've been cutting to him talking to this psychologist like for a few episodes, and then finally a, a, a session ends, and he's you find out he's in jail, and you're like, wait, wait what? Yeah, what? <laughs> it was great. Like, but yeah, it's again, it's a really interesting idea because he because does he not trust friends or a real professional? To be completely honest with him, like. Well, it's kind of like, you know, who knows me better than one of my greatest villains? You know, yeah. that's kind of, it's like if Lex Luthor was Superman's therapist. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. And just Mark Miller, like whether it's Jupiter's Legacy or a lot of his, you know, creator-owned projects, like this is a guy that comes with a wealth of knowledge from comic books and a love of comic books. Like a lot of his work does get adapted for TV and film. But for him, it's still about the comics. Yeah, and, and uh, that was with a just lot of genius these ideas. for me. Yeah, oh, me too. Yeah, absolutely love that. And probably the last character we need to talk about, and I'm hoping it's not the end for this character, Anna Akana as Raikou. Yeah. Walter's daughter, the daughter of Brainwave, has similar abilities, and he makes a point of saying early on, I'd say early on, she's only in episodes seven and eight. And she's on the cover for volume two of the trade. So I'm not sure what's going to yeah. happen there because she looks to be dead. Yeah. At the end of episode yeah. eight. Um, because she has, as you said, abilities like his with the, the uh, telepathy and uh, other related psychic powers. She's got super strength like a dad. But unlike her dad, she uses katanas. I was getting Clint Barton, Ronan in Avengers Endgame when she was yeah. going to town. Wow, those scenes were excellent. Yeah, um, and she's she's a a, a a hit woman or an assassin. Like it's all about you pay me to do something and I do it. Uh, kind of very Deathstroke in that way. It doesn't matter who's paying the bill. If they can pay the bill, then she will do it. Um, but because of him, uh, what happens in over the course of episode seven and eight with her father uh, supposedly going into the deteriorating mind of the corpse of clone Blackstar. That's a hard <laughs> sentence to get out. Yeah. <laughs> she's managed to pick up on from his mind that he's full of shit yeah, <laughs> and that he's yeah. actually responsible and he doesn't trust her to keep her mouth shut. I'm like, yes, are we are really we interesting? I mean, all in terms of purposes, like any other show, I'd be like, yeah, okay, cool. That character's dead. Well, not cool, but okay. I acknowledge yeah. I recognize that character's dead, but with this show, you don't quite know, but at the same time, it seemed pretty definitive at the end that he cut her throat and that she is dead. Yeah. Um, was, again, I, I mentioned the comics, and she seems to play a much more prominent role there. But I also said how they look to be deviating and forging their own path quite a lot. 
Yeah, and you know, is it a case of uh, she's projected yeah. uh, a copy of herself? Like that's the nature of their abilities; they can make others see what they want. So he's very uh, sure of himself to the point, yeah. or maybe overconfident that he I think is you've much just... stronger than she is. Yeah. I think you've cracked it. I reckon that's what it is because I was generally surprised that she'd been killed. But would basically like what was happening is that he was showing her something. But it didn't. It turned out it wasn't really happening, and then she's dead. But I think you're right. I think. But what he didn't see is that next step where she's also showing him something. She's such a cool character. Yeah. They brought her in for two out of the eight episodes. Yeah, I reckon she's still out there. I'm. I'm hoping yeah. because she was a really cool character, and you, you, you're going to need that. You've got the Paragon, the son of the Utopian, and you, you also need to still have the daughter of Brainwave out there. Yeah, because um, Brainwave's whole point, other than control, like the the his first step seems to be cleaving apart the relationship between Utopian and his son Paragon. Like so, I. Is he expecting to be able to mold one or the other? Because Utopian said straight out, although I don't know how much I believe it, Brainwave has never been able to use his abilities on him. That was interesting, he's, wasn't it? I took note of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, are you though? Or yeah. can he may not be able to use his actual like powers on you, but he can still say things and manipulate you in yeah. the traditional he sense. Wouldn't, he wouldn't know. And his love for his brother, he'd never suspect him. Hmm. So I thought that when he said that, he made a point of saying that his powers have never been able to work on him, but you'd only really know. I mean, you wouldn't know. No. I think there's probably... I mean, even how he's such a stickler for his code, I mean, obviously we know the code is very important to the utopian, but we don't know if there has been any influence around that. Yeah. Um, like is his ultimately uh hardline rule of it cannot be broken. Is it so absolute because he's already been influenced or is it, is it because something has happened? I mean, he, they say himself, which this is another big mystery for season two of like literally what, where is Sky Fox and what, when did he and why did he decide I'm out? But all this stuff that he talked to now with his uh, ex-supervillain slash shrink is <laughs> yeah. the stuff he used to talk to Sky Fox about, who was his best friend, who yeah. is the sort of person you go to when you want to talk about your brother. <laughs> yeah, and, th- and that was... In- interesting dynamic how he, yeah he didn't go to his brother walter it was his it was his friend george that he confided in all the time and yeah. even the relationship between the dad and samson samson what's his first name i'm, I'm, I'm blanking on sheldon. utopian's first name sheldon yes it, walter was jealous of that relationship so there's all these different dynamics that was going on before there were even superpowers. Oh, you know, actually, you know, on the name, you know, I read this online that there was a competition. I'm not sure if it's like local to Scotland, but it was basically to have a character in Jupiter's Legacy be named after a competition winner, right? The name of the guy, and again, I believe it was Scotland, the name of the guy who won the competition 
was Sheldon Sampson. Huh. And that is That's literally... Really cool. Isn't it? That is literally where the name came from. So this guy would have seen his name in comics, but now his name's been thrown around in the new Netflix show. Yeah, and they they, they say his That's name a lot. Cool. They, they, they basically do, yeah. never say Utopian. It's so I don't know why Eldon or Shelley. Shelley, that's <laughs> right. I completely blanked on. Oh, when his dad kept appearing, and his face is all mushed up from when he jumped off the building. Yeah, it's it's horrifying. Yeah. She mentioned the trials that they have to go through. Like Sheldon, out of all of them, obviously had it hardest, and you know to the point where I thought he was going insane. Yeah, uh, because his dead father is showing up and attacking his mind like they're out to get you like you he's like paranoia uh as part of the test and he's got to convince even though he thinks maybe he's losing his own mind six other people to come with him and believe him yeah, that they have convince. to go to this place <laughs> it's really like a set of trials that they have to all get through they have to pass these trials to be worthy of the powers and I guess in later seasons, we'll find out who, who's responsible because someone's behind it. Yeah, I know from the comics, and I don't want to say it here if people have only watched the show and have not read the comics, just in case that's what they end up doing. Before we talk about the music of the show, and we've talked about the great work of artist Frank Qualty, Jock, artist Jock, another favourite of mine, provided the artwork for the opening tile sequence. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I love Jock's work. And and seeing his art on screen as part of this title sequence was really cool. Yeah, and, you know, he's probably the thing he's probably known best for in terms of uh, films and TV is he did all the uh, pre-production work and design work for the movie Ex Machina with uh, Donald Gleason's not the Donald Gleason, his son, um, and Jason I- uh, Oscar Isaac about you know Oscar Isaac's created artificial intelligence and uh, what he thinks is and he's having his employee um, Gleason test it to see if he's right. Like, did I? Like you're gonna to have to administer the Turing test, um, but you can't tell anyone. And the AI played by Alicia Vikander, all of the production, uh, pre-production artwork and visuals and everything was established, and all that work was done by Jock, as well as the Carl Urban dread film. Yeah, and he's done heaps of other work as well. Like he's got a concept book out for Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Like he did a yeah. lot of work on that as well. And if you're looking at comics, I mean. Green Arrow year one is excellent. And that yeah, was essentially phenomenal. the main basis for the Stephen ML Arrow show. And that yeah. was written by Andy Diggle, who they went to create the character John Diggle and named him after. And it all came out of Green Arrow year one. Scott Snyder, his Batman run back when Dick Grayson was Batman. Yeah, yeah he had I, a phenomenal. Was it the yeah. Black Mirror? Was the... the Black Mirror, yep. Big fan of Jock. Uh, if he, like he did, um, he was the creator own project to Image Witches. And anything that Jock is doing interiors on, I'll, I'll pick it up. So yeah, big fan of his. And it was really cool seeing, seeing his, his artwork in the in title sequence. And the little tab comes up, skip. 
I didn't. I watched it. <laughs> yes. It's so, it's so cool seeing his artwork. And the composer on the show is, uh, I've not heard the name before, Stephanie Economo. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her surname right. She's written the music for Step Up High Water, which was a stars series, as well as the second season of Manhunt Deadly Games. She also scored two episodes of the Disney Plus documentary series, Marvel 616, directed by Gillian Jacobs and Alison Brie. And most recently, she's completed the score for the Assassin's Creed DLC Siege of Paris. And also, she's been a longtime collaborator of Golden Globe-nominated composer Harry Gregson-Williams. So she's contributed to movies like Mulan, The Meg, The Equalizer 2. So she's been doing a lot of stuff for a while, whereas this is a first big property superhero project. Yeah, um, and there was nothing other than that, the title sequence, which was great. Um, the music fit, nothing that really stood out to me. I mean, and she's having to do something really difficult because the, she's having to do all the stuff, the scenes back in the past uh, and use, utilize music that fits that period and tones that fit that period. And the Monte with all the, the crazy superpowers and stuff. So she's, she's really had to be nimble with her, uh, her technique and everything to make it not just fit what error is on the screen, but also coherent that it seems sounds like it should be part of the same series. Um, but nothing that really I can think on right now that really captured my, um, my attention. Uh, but on initial watches of a lot of things, that's often the case. It's only truly exceptional pieces of music that the second I hear it on the first of uh, first exposure, like jumps out at me, um, which is usually top, top, top tier guys like Hans Zimmer or John Williams or people of that ilk. Um, but yeah, really good music. Uh, at least what I think, how about yourself? Yeah. Did you notice any? Oh, well it's only really that title sequence. Cause again, it's like, it is a superhero show, but it's not that type of superhero show. It's not Christopher Reeve flying through the air to the theme by John Williams. It's not that kind of, that kind of thing. But the opening title sequence is excellent, and you get it there. But for the most part, they don't really use from memory like any signature themes for for characters. Yeah, and that's the thing because it's as you know, we keep bringing up. It's more of a dra- uh, family drama or interpersonal relationship drama than it is a superhero show. They didn't have the time necessary or the set pieces to establish this is this character and this is the theme that we're going to have in the background to trigger that. Like, Oh, that person must be showing up that it's not that kind of a show, um, which is, you know, we talk about the Marvel cinematic universe. Each most of those characters have had multiple films in order to really drive home. Like when you hear this theme, this person's coming up and even with Batman, Superman and one woman on the DC films at the moment and, and Aquaman now, They've all got themes kind of ready to go. Um, you know, Star Trek and Star Wars are really good at coming up with this stuff, but they've been going long enough that, of course, they do. Um, it's funny. It is. I just watched the 
composer for the Succession TV show uh, on do his Vanity Fair interview talking about how he comes up with themes and the main theme of the show, which is brilliant, the pieces that make it up and how he uses those elements to tell, to not be like just repeating it over and over again, depending on the scene in the show he's, he's readapting it for. Um, and I mean, you've got to be some kind of musical uh, and like mathematical genius to figure out like, okay, so here's the scale I've written the theme in. Here's the tone of the scene. I need to use it in the background to, and all that, how he works. I'm like, wow, that's one guy working on a fairly straightforward uh, drama series for something like a superhero show. That's got to be even more complicated because it's got to be, uh, you know, you're doing eight episodes, you're doing it on your own. You've got multiple characters to cover multiple time periods. Yeah. So hats off to her for getting all through that. Yeah, definitely. Without... Yeah. It's, yeah, it's good. I mean, look at the, the CW shows, the DC shows, Blake Neely, he was the guy that did all of them to begin with. And now if you look at later seasons, he's still attached in some capacity, but it's him and somebody else. And I think they're doing probably a lot of their heavy lifting now, and he's just got them set up at the beginning. But at the time, like he was doing like Arrow, Flash, and others simultaneously. Like 20-plus yeah. episodes a year, which is an incredible output. But an interview with him, like he would have his signature themes ready to go. So he knew that this particular scene, he'd already got it prepared earlier. I'm going to drop this signature here. And it could yeah. be like, oh, this, this um, episode of Arrow, this scene, but this type of scene, let's use the Arrow theme version four or version five or whatever it may be. And then you just drop it in and then you just tie it all together and feel familiar. John Williams was the master of that, whether it's Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Superman, you know, you could just keep going on and on. And someone like Alan Silvestri, Back to the Future, the Avengers theme in 2012 was just yeah. incredible. Yeah. And they, yeah, they, they, they know how to have something fit in the background, knowing at this point that signature theme that does impose itself comes out, triggers the, Oh, that's the part I know, that familiarity. Um, and that's, but you only have a season of this show so far. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. But, you know, just going back to Sylvester, it was just today I was listening to an interview with him and he was talking about the end of the first Back to the Future movie. And you had Doc on the street, you had the flaming uh, tire tracks, and you hear the Back to the Future theme. Now, for that movie, they had a, a full orchestra. But for that particular moment, it was one person and one instrument on a horn or using a yeah. horn. And that was it. Because yeah. it wasn't a matter of going big. It was just that signature theme. And once you've got that, whether it's the opening title sequence on Jupiter's Legacy, you know, the Marvel movies, DC movies, you can weave it in and out as you like. Like yeah. Avengers Endgame, Portals, again, like they they waited and waited and waited. And as soon as 
you had Captain America Avengers Assemble. There it was. Yeah, in all its glory. We've talked about the show. Before we get to our rating, I'll just talk a little bit more about the comics. We've kind of stop, start, stop, start throughout the review between the show and the comics. You were right when you were talking about or trying to think back to when the comics actually came out. January 2012. That was the first, the first issue of... Or that was when it was first announced that they were going to be putting together Mark Miller, Frank Quality, a superhero epic, which he referred to as being his Star Wars. That was his plan from the get-go. But the original name was Jupiter's Children. Yeah. It wasn't until they were finalizing the first issue, they'd not quite put the logo together yet, and they changed it to Jupiter's Legacy, which I think you'll agree is a much better title. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The first volume, or the first five issues, follows the world's greatest heroes who have grown old, and their legacy is a poisonous one to the children who will never live up to their remarkable parents. So, so far, that sounds, sounds like the show. The second also consists of five issues and follow Hutch and Chloe, who have come out of hiding with son Jason to assemble a team of super crooks from around the globe. Different to what we've got in the show. So whether that's where they're going or they're going to take a completely different direction, I don't know. And then, as I said earlier, they're putting together another collection, maybe another five issues in another series. Yeah. Yeah, which um, I, I can't wait. I, I really enjoyed this. You know, I watched it over two days and it was very easy, very like like punchy. Just next one, next one, next one, next one. Oh, it's getting late in the day. All right. But uh, I, I better save some for tomorrow. Otherwise, I'll burn through it all too quickly. Um, all the actors have done like a really great job. Um, just outside of the... And uh, certain shots of costumes or makeup, as we've discussed, it's it's a really good show. It's its main problem, I think, in terms of uh, where people are probably going to remember it is we are spoiled right now. When you're getting shows like Invincible, when you're getting shows like The Boys and WandaVision and Falcon and Winter Soldier and CW who are so, so long in the tooth with this, with having, you know, seven or eight years of building an entire universe with multiple characters who lead their own shows. It's really hard to stand up against such things. And even uh, like the Marvel Netflix stuff, Daredevil, especially is one that always stands out to me and the Jessica Jones series. Um, like these are your competition now. Uh, so it's especially when you're not a known property I mean outside of comic circles I don't think anyone if you went down to the street and told someone oh uh, Jupiter's Legacy like yeah Netflix came up with that whole hog they'd be like oh yeah that makes sense it's only comic people who'd understand like no 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 these were comics and they've been comics for a while it's just they're not like a large expansive thing on the order that you get with the decades with the big companies um so it's, yeah, it's a stiff competition, especially this year. The fact that we have had The Boys and two Marvel shows and Invincible and a bunch of other stuff. I mean, it's super stiff competition. 
that being said, like it's as I said, uh, my friend who doesn't isn't that much into comics has obliterated this show in a single day. Like he sat down at like lunchtime and smashed it out, and was like, "Call me when you finish. I I need to talk about this show." Like, oh mm. my god, um, and there yeah, it's smart, and I don't think people these days quite appreciate how hard it is to come up with not just original uh character uh, superheroes and villains power sets but also names and costumes is if you've ever sat down and tried it every time you start to plop stuff onto a page like oh wait a minute that's this character or it's that character i didn't even realize i was channeling dick grayson uh, nightwing or uh, spawn or you know the the list goes on and on and on with characters like that oh that's clearly batman what have i done um so hats off as well to make all of these characters not just have names that aren't completely ridiculous because it is really 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 hard because even sky fox i'm positive like one in fact i'm like 100 positive that one of the uh Marvel characters like the brother of Thanos is Sky Fox, and he has like uh, uh, relationship abilities like pheromones. <laughs> okay, I'm, that Star I'm Fox? Familiar. Maybe, maybe. I I would say Mark Miller's done his homework. Yeah, but you're, um, but you're right. Though, a lot of these names will sound like pre-existing names, but, but yeah, creating not just a new superhero, a whole world, because not just like the Union. It's all the new superheroes. It's the old villains, the new villains. Yeah, a lot of work has gone into this for sure. Yeah, um, and to get that, to pull that off at all, like you have, to, I take my hats off to anyone who can do that. But for, especially for season one of a show, eight episodes, trying to get the history of the world out as well as the story they intended to tell from the get go, which is set seventy years, a hundred years later. Like, yeah, really well done. Really smart. Um, if I had to give it a rating, I'd probably put it at four out of five. Um, there are a little, a few things that, um, you know, as we mentioned, like when he's in the mind and brainwaves fighting Guy Fox, like who was that for? <laughs> was it yeah. like it's 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 a strange like you're beating yourself up to sell this but who are you having to beat yourself up for uh small things like that and on the production values the fact that we have been spoiled for choice of late um just bring it down that extra point that instead of going five out of five like i thought invincible clearly smashed but it's so compelling i have so many questions for season two that i need answers for i'm um, you know, the second it drops, which I'm sure is going to be at least a year away, probably like 18 months, I'm going to be there opening weekend, like uh, as soon as it drops, churning through to get those answers. I need them. I have to know. Um, everyone does such a great job. You know, they've done a good job selling the characters and their personalities. They're all separate and there's not copy paste. Like this, you're just this guy, but young or a woman or, you know, that sort of stuff, which can be, like a problem where side characters or background characters just don't have personality. They just slip away completely. You know, they've done a really good job with that. Yeah. Four out of five. How about yourself? Yeah. I mean, 
there's a lot to enjoy with this show. Like we've pointed out some of the some of the negatives. I'm not gonna come in quite as as high as you, but not too far behind. I'm gonna come in at a three point five. I did enjoy this. It does a lot of it does feel as though it's a prologue for what the actual show will be. But I get it, it's an origin. It's it's a lot of setup. And I'm glad that they were able to tell that over eight episodes. We talked about not doing the full 13 episodes. So I think when we get to season two, we're just going to be off. Like the show will just take off. But it, it's good. Like it's good TV. It's, it's not just another superhero show and there's many out there. So that there's, there's enough differences about the show that it's definitely worth people's time. But a lot of people I know that like superhero movies and TV adaptions are just not watching it. Yeah. So hopefully it really does find an audience because it is worth people's time. So yeah, yeah. 3.5 out of 5. But I've got high hopes for the second season and I'm going to go and pick up the trades. I'm looking forward to seeing where the story goes on the page. Yeah, uh, and I have to give hats off to them as well. They could have very easily taken the comic book route and done the first season purely in the in the current era with hints at the past and then pumped out a whole season of the show of the background and stuff uh, of like, oh, you know, from the world of Jupiter's legacy, undone Jupiter's circle or done Jupiter's legacy golden era. Yeah. and actually giving you all the history. So thank God they, they gave us everything we needed to, to, to get the context of this world and get a, a larger, bigger picture because it could have been on a money-making side of things, a business sense. It could have been not this way. Uh, and I've, you know, I've watched the dark universal pictures comes to mind of like, they, uh, they slayed the cow before the head, created the herd because they <laughs> yeah. just couldn't help themselves of like now nah, we're going to put this on and this on and this on it's like no 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 you need to start with the good thing first a complete single film that you can spin stuff off of rather than here's a universe it doesn't just yeah, happen that way right. it do, you do have to put in the hard yards and build piece by piece by piece and they have and we should probably say as well that i know we're not rating already but the flashback sequences to the 20s look incredible they're amazing. I, as I said, I could easily have watched that as its own series. Yeah, me but too. The fact that we got all of those answers, those very necessary like world-building answers in this, and I mean, I couldn't pick a favorite of like, uh, did you prefer the, the the flashback stuff or the current? And we, I didn't even get to mention um, the 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 storytelling visual cue that you went from the the flashbacks to now, where it would go from full screen like us uh, uh of the tv for the past stuff and then when it back went come to the modern period you got the telltale widescreen black bars top and bottom like every time i saw those expand i'm like oh we're going into a flashback and then it would contract and it would cut it would transition i'm like i noticed it immediately and yet every time it happened it was such a simple cue um, i was blown away by that kind of well, storytelling um, let me just admit this right here right now did not notice. 
Yeah. But now I need yeah. to go back and have a look. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll notice oh, it in any that. single episode. But yeah, I, wow. I, it's like on the top of my notes. Like I've got to mention these transitions to how amazing they are. And you did it right at the end. So <laughs> thanks for that. And I will. I'll go back and just uh, have a scan through a couple of episodes just to see those transitions. Well, that's it for our episode all about Jupiter's Legacy Season 1. If you want to contact us about this episode or request a topic for an upcoming show, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. Jane, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.